0: Yeah, every day's a good day really. But some days are just you, you pack a, a line of fruit and you think, well, that's about as good as it gets anywhere in the world, and that's that's a good day.
1: This is the Producers. I'm Danny Valant. Peter and Alison Solaris grew up in North Queensland on cane farms, but they took a different path for their own careers. A somewhat radical path, according to many of their contemporaries. Fruit Forest Farm grows dozens of types of tropical fruit. It's not only the product range that's different though, it's also the unique trellis style of caring for trees, which is more resistant to cyclone damage. We check in with Peter Solaris, farmer, trailblazer, durian lover.
0: Uh, My name's Peter Solaris, and my wife Alison and I bought the property in 1983. So it's nearly 40 years this December that we've owned the property. We both grew up in cane farms in the area, and um, everyone said we were crazy growing tropical fruit. You grow bananas or cane or have cattle and you don't go into these other things. And yeah, we've been through a couple of cyclones and we're pretty innovative in what we do. We try a lot of different stuff and the the business is going really well and we've got a lot of different fruits. Yeah, it's very exciting times still, even after 40 years. Yeah, we call it Fruit Forest Farm and uh, we're between Tully and Mission Beach couple hours south of Cairns, uh, 18 degrees latitude, and we grow, you name it, pretty much. So we'd have a, one of the bigger collections of different fruits in the world, and a lot of people have big collections, but we actually get a lot of them to fruit because we're far enough north and tropical enough. Uh, and there's new things coming on all the time. So remitene, mangosteen, durian, pomelo, soursop, breadfruit. um Star Apple, Wax Jambu, Relinia, Abiu is a good one that's been going recently. It's a new one out of the Amazon. So there's all different things and some of them are commercial and some not, but it's a, it's amazing what different people want. And I suppose in the tropical fruit industry, there's so many different cultures in Australia. There's usually someone from somewhere that knows it from back home and then there's other people always looking for new tastes and there's not too many frontiers left in beef chicken or chickpeas or carrots but the tropical fruit world is still there's a massive number of new things that we've just got to try and firstly see if they grow then secondly see if we can grow them well enough to get them to a reasonable commercial state to get them to market and yeah increasingly we're doing more of them each year and chefs and restaurants are always looking for an edge or something different so they're always on our case saying what do you got different we want to We want to keep people excited and that keeps us keen as well it was an old cane farm when we bought it and um it was cane doesn't do the best for soil uh enhancement sort of thing but we knocked all the cane out and uh it's a lower slopes of the walter hill range which is originally uh gray wacky's parent rock which is formed from a giant from an ancient undersea um escarpment where you got really fine silt formed and it's been uplifted so it's a silty loam soil, not as good as volcanic soil, but it's covered in really lush rainforest. So it's basically it's it's pretty good jungle, and we get about four metres of rain a year. And um, a lot of our more sensitive stuff is about a hundred on the parts of the block that are about a hundred metres above sea level. So we're not getting as cold in winter as the other areas that are flatter, that lower than that here. And it just sort of works well with things like the breadfruit, Nigerians, and, and the like. Yeah, we can. Sort of get away with most things, really.
1: Though he grew up on a cane farm, Peter Solaris is a fruit fan from way back. How did his love of fruit and his dislike of crawling around roof cavities steer him into life as a tropical fruit farmer?
0: When I was a kid, and I was born in 1954 and used to ride a push bike on dirt roads to school, which doesn't seem to happen much anymore, but we used to throw guavas at each other on the way home. There were wild guava trees on the, on the road to and from school. And we'd eat fruit, and we we growing up in cane farm. There was always backyard orchard of different things, and um, so I sort of liked that concept. And we grew up with fruit to to some degree. And I'm an electrician by trade, and I sort of I'm six foot three, so crawling around in ceilings in summertime to put fans in wasn't my my dream job. And I liked the idea of working outdoors, and I just liked the orchard scene. And I've always been one to. T- tackle things that people reckon too, reckon are too hard. And I could see sugarcane wasn't going to go good in our family line because you just needed more area and more area every year to be viable. Whereas as tropical fruit, we don't use much area of the land that we've got. Property's 220 acres in total, but 160 of that is rainforest. Um, yeah, we, we, uh, we can grow more and earn more dollars on a small area and there's really no boundaries to it it's all something new coming on we've got a few projects on the in the pipeline that we sort of work on that are the next uh frontier fruits we just got to crack how to do it in a good way the first trees we planted were purple mango which is the queen of tropical fruits and they are a great fruit there's no doubt about that and rambutans and we grew taro as well which is a it's not a root crop it's a corm actually it grows above the ground but it's we used to call ourselves Muscle tucker Taro because it's got a natural steroid in it and that's why a lot of the Polyte- Polynesian sportsmen and that are so big because they grow up on Taro and that's their a, a staple food. It's a very good very good food, really, Taro, but it was too, long, too low to the ground for my liking to handle it and after one of the cyclones we thought, we'll just focus on tree crops and it was finally after Cyclone Larry in 2006 we decided to... to um, We got knocked around a fair bit and we decided to trellis our fruit trees to try and make us more resilient in cyclone situations and alice and i went to melbourne hired a car and drove from melbourne through orchards right across to south australia and we were in the shepparton region we had a light bulb moment we said we've got to give this a go and we came back and we didn't tell anyone which is important because human nature is if you tell somebody you're going to do something new, they'll normally find a reason why you're wrong in changing the status quo, and they put doubts in your mind. So we made sure we didn't tell anyone until we already had gone too far, and we still get knockers, but we're still doing really well, so it doesn't matter anymore.
1: Fruit Forest Farm is in cyclone country. That's just reality. As Peter says, every day is a day closer to the next big wind. He talks about the realities of weather and the tree trellising that mitigates the damage.
0: And within five years, less than five years of doing that, we got Cyclone Yasi, which is the biggest in living memory still in Australia. It was a Category Five, and we got the eye of it. Took 40 minutes for the eye to pass, and um, we still got a good touch-up. But we came out of it with a a good direction and future ahead because we didn't lose all our trees, and um, that's what. Trellising in its different forms for us means that we know we've got a good business plan that we can still produce fruit, even after a big hit. And we don't get... Yeah, it is really. We're still fine-tuning it. We don't know it all, and we've made some pretty big mistakes over time. But, um, yeah, it's... We... We fine-tune it as we go on different crops. We're the first ones that I know of to, to trellis tropical tree fruits because most of the trellising is done on temperate fruits for better production, more efficient harvest, which works well for us. And the cyclone proofing is a benefit or it's a it's another benefit for us that they don't necessarily uh, targ- uh, uh, hope to get. But yeah, it's been great in a lot of ways. And um, we like to think a lot of people say trial and error we'd like to think trial and success try and get it right the first time because it's easier and um yeah it's been good and still interesting yeah we've we've um we fine-tuned a lot of stuff and the next cyclones a day closer every day so it's, it's one of the things we do have to live with in this part of the world one thing about a cyclone and we're lucky in some ways <coughs> excuse me we're lucky in some ways because we do get warning in this day and age like A really big one was in 1918 in this part of the area at Mission Beach, and they wouldn't have really had any idea how big it was and what was was going to happen, but in this day and age, we know one's probably going to come in or likely to, so we get warning and we can prepare for it, unlike people with bushfires and that, who don't get that much warning at different times. But um, you sort of watch them on the radar and you hope they're not going to come in, and I still remember Cyclone Hamish came down the Queensland coast and it was out off the sea and one of my neighbours got the chainsaw out and cut all his rambutans down to stop the wind damage. And, I uh, know oh a couple of people doing that, but the cyclone didn't come in and it didn't cross the coast anywhere in Queensland. It went right down towards Brisbane and then went out to sea. But um, in the few big ones, we've had Winifred in 86, then Larry in 2006, then Yasi in 2011. Um, Though they, they got gradually bigger, which was good because we had trial runs as we went and... You sort of watch them, you sort of hope it's not going to hit you and you sort of think it'd be good if it crossed somewhere else, but the bottom line is you, once they get to a certain stage, you're going to cop it. Uh, we've got a good strategy in place. We, we prune trees, we, we're batting stuff down. Um, there's a fair few things we're prepared for because we know there's another one coming, but with when it, with Yasi was a classic though, we've got a dugout under the house, which is at the office come cyclone shelter and there was four of us and the dog in there and we could hear it's the wind slowly picks up and picks up it's over a matter of hours it's not a quick thing it just slowly builds and builds and then when the eye the edge of the eye came it sort of just stopped it just dropped to nothing and it was the most surreal thing I've ever experienced I think it was you come outside and it's it's dark And the vegetation's absolutely trash because you've just had 300-kilometre-hour winds and frogs are all going crazy because they don't know what's happening and it's the clearest starry sky you've ever seen right in the middle of that eye. And... Yeah, you just check that out. It's dangerous. You can see why it's dangerous because when the wind comes back from the other side, it's, it's at full speed. So people who get stuck outside fixing their roof or anything are in big trouble because when it comes back, it's full speed. And then... It stays pretty bad for a while, and then probably two or three hours later, it just gradually tapers. We'd had a lot of knockers, and people, even government departments and the like, sort of were fairly critical that it wouldn't work for various reasons. But And some of my mates said, oh, we won't get another cyclone for 20, 30 years. You know, we won't have to worry about it. But one of the best things, we're, our house is up on the hill, and we normally can't see out too far because the rainforest is too high, but it was all just trashed and just matchsticks everywhere. And I still remember just looking out over the orchard on the sowshop block, and I could still see all the trees still standing, still in place. And in Cyclone Yarsi, we had four, no, we had 78 trees, just dinosaur trees, as we call freestanding ones. And only four of them were left standing. And it was only a Category 4, and we didn't get the eye. And after Yarsi, which was a Category 5, we had 450 trees on trellis. We didn't lose a single tree and we won Champion Fruit of the Tully Show within six months of of the cyclone with two big sour-sop fruit so that to me was a good business plan to go that way was trellising.
1: Durian divides people. Some love it. Some think it's the most disgusting thing they've ever encountered. Peter Solaris grows it. But where does he line up on eating durian?
0: Yeah, it's my favourite fruit, Danny. It's, um, smells like hell and tastes like heaven, so they say. But it's an addictive fruit, really, because its nutrient levels are so high. It's just so full of everything. Uh, domestic cats will eat it, and I've heard in the wild that uh, tigers and elephants will fight over it in the jungles because it's, it's like... Uh, Animals won't fight over an apple or a banana, but it's like it's like good meat because it's so rich, really. And the first bloke that I was of, as most people are, when I first smelled it and saw it, I thought you have to be joking. You can't eat something like that. But a bloke said, um, "Just get a Jats cracker and put it a bit on a put a bit on a Jats cracker." And what it is, your head's then thinking savoury and it is more savoury than fruity at times and then you have a little bit and then you sort of try a bit again because everyone it's like they're like religious fanatics trying to get you to try it because once they're hooked they want everyone else hooked and um i tried it a few times and they um then it then it sort of grabbed you it become you become addicted to it because i think your body's saying this is good for you eat it orangutans have lived on it for millions of years it's going to be good for you as well and um it's a bit like wine, I suppose. There's a lot of different durians. So if you've eaten one in Bali and you didn't like it, don't write durians off because there's a lot of different strains. It's like wine. There's a lot of beers and wines that I don't like either, but you find the type that you like. Uh, it's it's the the Holy Grail, really. The first jury in, in the season, if we're, for us, is normally a gob or something like that, which are not the prime ones. But when it, you haven't had any for a long time, that's still a good one. But one that springs to mind is money is a variety you get in, in Thailand. I do like the Montong, which is a pretty common one in Thailand too because it, it's a sweet, custardy, custardy, fluffy one. And I like that custard caramel, bit of chocolate sort of flavour. Yeah, it's... um. It's, it's a good one that I like. Some people like them really savoury and they're a lot more of that uh, oniony sort of thing, but I like the, the sweet custody types. And we're doing a lot of trial there with durians because we need Aussie durian selections and we've got a lot of seedlings from other countries which are their best types. And we're trialling them here in Australia to see what, um, and we've got a couple of standouts already that are Aussie bred durians that look like they're gonna perform well and taste phenomenal. <laughs>
1: Does a farmer ever finish work? Probably not. So how does Peter Solaris manage the endless list of tasks on fruit forest farm?
0: So every day is pretty different um, there's always there's always something on a, on any farm you never really finish work and never ever catch up and ours is probably even more like that we sort of... Uh, there's just always something seems to be due. You never can sit back, but you, n- you need to learn to switch off and say, well, we can't get it all, we'll just get what we can. And then you see something fruiting for the first time or it's a, it's a new flowering of the season coming. That, that energises you and you sort of think, well, here we go again. And I suppose we've made a rod for our own back to some degrees. If you just grew, say, lychees or something, or mangoes, that would be a lot simpler because your season finishes and you just do your maintenance work and tidy up but we're picking pretty well all year, which is good for cash flow and keeping everyone employed. But um, it means you don't sort of get too many breaks unless it's, particularly this winter, where it was very warm. We've even got breadfruit still hanging now. We'll probably pick some this week. And that's the first time I've ever seen breadfruit flower and fruit through winter time. So because it was a warm winter, things haven't slowed down much. So each season can be different as well we do we eat a lot of fruit because you're continuously sampling what you pack because we want to make sure the flavour's right and that's not a crook that's as everyone knows is that you can you can fairly easily buy some pretty ordinary fruits even avocados i bought some recently and four out of four i had to throw away basically because they're brown inside so we make sure we do the, do our best to make sure our our fruit is as good as it can be taste wise so sometimes it's a bit hard when you've got When you've got fruit all the time and you're looking at it continuously, it's sort of hard to to front it and eat too much, but we do eat quite a lot of fruit on the farm, yeah.
1: When you're busy on your farm, it can be tricky to do the marketing and sales as well. How does Peter get the word out about what's growing, flowering and in season, not to mention how to use it?
0: In the old days we used to do brochures and we'd have um, marketing group meetings and we'd talk about the design and whether this was a good photo, we'd put on the brochure and then you'd send them down to the shopkeepers and they'd, we heard often they'd just throw them in the bin, wouldn't even put them out where the fruit were. The best thing ever is social media now, Um, we've got, I think it's over 6,000 followers now on Fruit Forest Farm. and. it's the best thing ever, because if we know something's coming on, we can communicate with people in their homes what's actually growing and what's in season and what's flowering and how we do it. So it's a, it's a good connection with not only the consumers, but the marketers and the people. Chefs, we've got a lot of chefs that we're dealing with now, and they follow what we're up to, and they're always after something different that they can add to their menus, And or some of them are anyway, some of them will stick to that same thing forever. but. Um, yeah, it's exciting I think because social media is free and it's it's so interactive with people and we can direct people to which shops are likely to have our food at different times which um, works in both ways for them and us. So it's that's a, one of the later innovations. It's a lot better than the old days when we used to do brochures and use fax machines.
1: Chefs are always looking for an edge when it comes to lesser known produce and innovative items on a menu. What are some of the interesting uses of his tropical fruit that Peter has encountered in restaurants?
0: One of the best that I've heard of, and there's exhibition restaurant in Brisbane's doing great things, and that's a new one. They do a lot of different things, and Michael, who owns it, is a friend of ours. He's, he's also got a shop in Anala in Brisbane, and um, I think it's pretty innovative. They're, they're continuously asking for different stuff, and we're sometimes embarrassed. We're thinking, we haven't got anything new or different that you don't know, and some of the things you... you uh, I forget what was on the menu that night with just small amounts of different things but a lot of really interesting flavours and, and presentation particularly. Yeah, it was just, it was endless. So dish after dish and a little taster after taster and it was a lot different to going to McDonald's, that's for sure. <laughs> and we went there fairly recently. It was pretty pretty, pretty amazing. But one of the best was Jeff Lindsay from Pearl Restaurant in Melbourne came on a farm too and this was quite a few years back. I don't know if he's still there or not. But he was getting our jackfruit or some people's jackfruit and he'd, he'd get the fruitlet and carefully take the seed out of the of the jackfruit fruitlet and fill it with hazelnut ice cream and that was his, one of his desserts and I thought that was really clever. and anyone I mentioned that to just says, wow, that would be so good, but if you come north you won't see you won't see too much happening. You come to Mission Beach and try and get exotic fruit in a restaurant, you won't you won't have a hope. So you'll get the same stuff you get in Melbourne, but not quite as good probably.
1: Can you imagine a fruit that weighs as much as the average 12-year-old child? Peter Solaris talks about his monster jackfruit.
0: The biggest fruit we've picked as a jackfruit was 38 kilos a couple of years ago. Last year it was, I think. That's a fair size. Yeah, we've, we get a few, we get plenty over 20, and we get some around 30, but 38 is, um, it was a tree growing on the edge of the rainforest, ironically, and it just, um, it just sort of, conditions were right, and it was, just grew big. Yeah, a bit hard to market something that big, you've got to say, though. We sort of half knew it was there, I'd seen it, and it's, um, I didn't, I sort of thought, we had some visitors, some agents from Brisbane it was, and they, we saw this fruit and I thought, wow, well, that must be close to ripe. So we actually picked it and took it down and put it on the scales and yeah, it was pretty big all right, but we sort of, um, yeah, we do miss things sometimes too. Sometimes uh, you, you don't see fruit like that, and it's not one that we normally uh, harvested for commercial reasons, it was a, just more or less a windbreak tree, so we nearly missed it all altogether.
1: With so much variation on Fruit Forest Farm, monotony is unknown. But what would Peter Solaris consider a really good day?
0: What's a good day? Every day's a good day. If you wake up and you're breathing still, it's a good day. But no, I think the environment we work on, work in is good. I don't have to drive for an hour and a half through traffic like some of my agents have said they have to do. Uh, I'm I'm just get on the quad bike and I'm, I'm at work sort of thing. You never really leave work either, but the house is separated from the orchard. It's a good day when uh, everyone's happy with what they're doing and there's a bit of fruit coming on, and yeah, we don't have many bad days. We have things that test our patience, machinery, mechanical breakdowns, and sometimes there's pest pressures from different things. But um, most things we net now, we've got cassowaries here big-scale on the property, and they you've got the biggest fruit-eating bird in the world. You've got to sort of be prepared to take some losses, but they're not as bad as some of the other things as well. So. Yeah, every day's a good day, really. But some days are just, you, you pack a, a line of fruit and you think, well, that's about as good as it gets anywhere in the world. And that's, that's a good day. I like the independence. It's um, it's up to our own resources for how big or small we can get it. And people say, are you going to expand? And my answer is definitely not at this stage anyway, because um, we've got, six people most days and if we're busy we get up to 10 during the season and that's a good number of people that you can work well with and get the right end result and the right quality control um yeah i think uh having grown up on a cane farm where you you you'd eat a bit a little bit of cane to taste the sugar and then it's as far as you can see you don't eat much cane whereas the diversity of things we pack and the quality of what we and, and eat and get the chance to eat and do taste is pretty satisfying and when you get agents or, or shops putting your brand name on stuff and putting it I saw a, a sign that a Brisbane shopkeeper had done saying fruit forest farm jackfruit today somebody showed me that and that's that's really satisfying when you know people appreciate what you're doing and how you do it and uh, yeah that's, that's what I like and the, financially it's great we do well we, we haven't had any debt for a long time and I think uh, we did, we've done some hard yards to get to this stage I've got to say but once you work out what to do and how to do it it's pretty satisfying I think we're, we're not affected by uh, some of the big worldly things that the, uh, some other primary producers are like the big scale things like sugar and that you're really just a pawn in the game really because you don't have control over what you're doing whereas all we need is a pallet and a box and something to get it there or an aeroplane to get it to market and we're still in business. So we do different types of packaging. We grow a lot of different fruits. So we're fairly, we don't need a, a sugar mill or anything to process our crop. We just um, put it on a pallet and do the best we can. And it's a fairly simple process in some ways when you say it quickly.
1: Peter Solaris is a happy farmer. He loves where he lives in the Queensland tropics. He's making enough money and he's in control of his supply chain. His farm is not too big, yet not too small either. And he shares his land with wampu pigeons, fig parrots, musky rat kangaroos, and red-legged paddy melons. Add in one of the world's largest commercial collections of tropical fruit and life is pretty good indeed. There's only one thing left to say. Peter, pass me some durian. This is The Producers, a Deep in the Weeds production. I'm Danny Fallant. Stay tuned as we talk to some of Australia's best farmers, makers, and growers. Follow us on Instagram at Producers Podcast or contact us via deepintheweeds.com.au.